Today we're going to be talking about some media hysteria with the first and only medication approved for premenopausal women for HSDD or hypoactive sexual desire disorder. It was recently approved and there's been some, you know, media discussion as well as uh, issues related to safety and efficacy for this drug known as Flavanserin or the pink Viagra. This is ReachMD. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Critchman, and joining me today is a longtime friend, uh, Dr. Lisa Larkin. She's a women's health internist, director of UC Women's Health Center at the University of Cincinnati College of Medicine. Lisa, thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy and hectic schedule to come and talk to us today about a very important issue that is really um, concerning to me. And for full disclosure, I'm on the advisory board for this company who owns this medication. So I wanted to bring somebody on the show to talk about fact versus fiction. There's been a lot of negative press, negative information, and I think we need to kind of talk about the facts, the fiction, the benefits, the risks, and really kind of get a new perspective in terms of HSDD. So let's just jump right in, Lisa. Talk to me about this JAMA article that came out. What are your concerns? Where do we go from here? Is sexual medicine dead for women, and what is the concern? Well, first of all, Michael, thank you very much for having me on the show. It's a tremendous opportunity to speak about a topic that I'm very passionate about. So to set the stage, I'm a clinician, so I really am in the trenches seeing patients with female sexual dysfunction, and for me, this is a very important medication and a significant advance in the field of women's health. And so thank you for the opportunity to talk because, as you correctly state, this JAMA article that was recently published has once again led to a tremendous media firestorm, and I really think there needs to be some perspective and some balance. The JAMA article is a meta-analysis of the previous studies. So correctly, the FDA took a look at the pivotal trials and approved the medication in August of this year. Flibanserin has been available in the pharmacy since October, and after the approval, there was tremendous media debate at that time about whether or not the FDA should have approved this medication, whether or not it's very effective, and whether or not there's significant side effects. The media firestorm kind of died down. Yeah, but Lisa, one second. I think the important thing to remember is the FDA never said that this condition doesn't exist. So this is an unmet medical need. And I think that's an important concept. So people are saying it doesn't even exist. And, you know, you and I, we are in the trenches. We see patients and we see patients that are impacted. So I think the important concept to remember is lowered libido or HSDD is impactful. We're not talking about a transient change in libido. We're not talking about libido is good when I'm in Bora Bora, but it's lousy when I'm in San Francisco or in the snow in Cincinnati, or we're talking about an impactful condition that is really devastating to some women. They have changes in self-esteem. They have depression issues. And again, so I think it's important for the listeners to understand there was never a doubt with the FDA that this condition exists, correct? Female sexual dysfunction as an area of unmet medical need. And I think, just as you said, it's really, really important to be very clear that this is a 
condition that has a biologic, well-established basis. And again, it's not everyone with low libido, right? This is hypoactive sexual desire disorder has a strict set of criteria. We use the DSDS to screen for it in the office. It really excludes people that have other causes of transient decreased desire or decreased desire related to medication. But hypoactive sexual desire disorder in the purest form is a real condition with a biologic basis that, as you said, really causes distress to the patient and is very impactful for relationships. And so again, this is a real condition and now we have the first ever approved medication for it. From my perspective, being at the FDA when it was approved, the FDA did a very thorough and thoughtful review of the data and the analysis. It was approved by a, by a vote of 18 to 6, and as I said, kind of approved in August, uh, lots of controversy after that in the pharmacies since October. And for those of us that practice sexual medicine, you know, st- we are all starting to use it in our patients. Um, and again, selecting the correct patient to use this in and then really talking about risks and benefits of this medication. Getting back to this JAMA article, I think what struck me as interesting is we're giving this medication 100 milligrams at night, and I'm still a little concerned that this meta-analysis included, you know, 50 milligrams twice a day. We know that twice a day at 50 milligrams has increased adverse events and increased issues with the tolerability of the drug. So I'm really concerned about the quality of it. And what are some high-level points from this JAMA article that, in your clinical impression and opinion, really are problematic and really we need to reevaluate? So the biggest thing for me is, as you mentioned, this meta-analysis included not just the pivotal trials, but other trials that either had the incorrect dose, a different dosing schedule, or were discontinued early. And so the problem is when you have trials like that included in the meta-analysis, it skews the data against flibanserin. So what they're looking at, so in the pivotal trials, the average increase in sexually satisfying events was one. And what the meta-analysis just published in JAMA really focuses on is that when they looked at the data, the increase in sexually satisfying events was 0.4, the mean increase. And so again, skewing it to look negative. In addition, it skews the side effects to be much more significant than in the pivotal trials. And so again, just from understanding how you collect the data to do the meta-analysis, the way that but because this study was using unpublished trials and trials with doses that we know have higher side effects and are not effective, it negatively skews the data. And so my feeling is, you know, this is a, this is a published paper. It's, you know, it is a meta-analysis, but this should not be the last word on flibanserin. What's very concerning to me is that the media attention has, again, this has created just a huge firestorm again. And what Lots of people who have looked at this meta-analysis now, there's been reports out there that say we should never prescribe this medication. And for those of us, again, in the trenches, this medication is a non-hormonal, centrally nervous system acting medication. And when you really look at the side effect profile, it's really very similar to lots of other medications that we're prescribing. So for me as an internist, I'm very comfortable with using SSRI, SNRI, antidepressants, which have very similar side effect profiles. And so it's very confusing to me that there's so much media hype about this medication because I don't really perceive it as very dissimilar to lots of other medications that have been on the market 
that we use and we discuss side effect profiles with patients. And it, it's, you know, it's really interesting in my clinical practice, Lisa, as a caveat, I uh, tried to prescribe this medication and got a rejection. And I don't know if you've been following the news, but in California, some of the insurance companies are saying that only a psychiatrist can prescribe this medication. And that's ludicrous. I mean, I have two decades of sexual medicine experience. And, you know, just yesterday I was talking to a psychiatrist and they're referring all their patients to me. They don't want to deal with sexual health issues. Um, they're multifaceted. And again, uh, this is in selected people who have an underlying biological issue. What I also found very fascinating is as insurance companies have rejected this uh, um, prescription, they also told me that I have to have a trial of testosterone, which is off-label, unapproved, with limited efficacy and safety, no long-term safety data as well, uh, as well as use Wellbutrin, which you know, or bupropion, which has higher side effects in terms of concern for syncope and hypotension than actually an approved medication. But I think, you know, I think you make some good points that, you know, we have to separate fact from fiction. And I think that it's concerning for clinicians. We know that there's a REMS program or an evaluation of risk management. Patients have to have signed uh, consent forms. Both clinicians have to be certified online. They have to go to a certified pharmacy. There's been problems with execution. And all these have had, you know, the snowball effect of the negative impact in the media. So, again, I want to reiterate that we discuss the disease state. I think that it's it boils down to a patient-clinician-therapeutic alliance. And tell me how you, you counsel your patients. I think that's an important concept. You've, you've screened them. And for those listeners, I know Dr. Larkin and I talk in initials all the time, and we kind of understand those, the DSDS. Right. So the DSDS is a five-question Screener, which really is very simple to use in the office, and I actually give out to my patients who come in for a sexual health consult to come see me. And the first four questions are really to establish that the patient has acquired generalized hypoactive sexual desire disorder. And what that means is that they, at one point in time, had a normal libido for them, that it has gone away, and that it has consistently gone away for a prolonged period of time. And so what you mentioned earlier in the show, Michael, was to say, you know, if you're on vacation in Maui and you have a great libido, but when you're home with your three children and you're busy with work and juggling the work-life balance, you don't have a libido, that is not HSDD. And so the first four questions, you really screen out kind of those types of things. The fifth question really is to make sure that there is not another cause of the HSDD. Is it surgery? Is it medication? Is there something else that really is contributing to the HSDD that would make flibanserin not a appropriate medication because really it's not acquired generalized hypoactive sexual desire disorder? And it's an easy tool. Patients find it very easy to answer the questions, and it's a really quick screener that any physician can use. I mean, the important thing is generalized. So if you have libido with your husband and not with your honey, and they're different people, uh, you know, you have to really look at this generalized and acquired. Acquired means that you had previously had normal libido. And again, your Maui analogy is great, but even if you ship the kids to Maui and you don't have those stressors, but you still are at home in Cincinnati and have no libido, it's a generalized issue. You are 
really affected by by this condition. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Sex Med on ReachMD. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Critchman. Joining me today is a wonderful friend and colleague, Dr. Lisa Larkin, who's a women's health internist who addresses sexual health concerns. We've been talking about phlebanserin, fact versus fiction, trying to tease out some of the issues. And Lisa, I wanted to talk about some of the side effects and some of the concerns and the worry about syncope, hypotension, and alcohol. And specifically, I want to talk about the alcohol issue, the alcohol study, as well as the driving study. I think that's really important. And let's talk about the driving study first and foremost. Uh, People and the FDA were really concerned that premenopausal women would take this drug at night, wake up in the morning, and be somnolent and be tired and uh, not able to drive their kids to school and have problems staying focused on the road. Tell us a little bit about the driving study and then jump right into the alcohol and syncope, please. The short story about the driving study is that the results were positive, meaning that there was no evidence that women suffered in terms of driving after. And in fact, the study really even looked like they were better drivers after they had potentially had a good night's sleep related to the phlebanserin. So I think the driving study is kind of not an issue that really needs to be discussed with the medication. I think the much bigger issue is um, alcohol. And uh, as part of the approval, alcohol is now an established contraindication. So women who are prescribed this medication through the REMS program that you mentioned have to sign a consent. Physicians need to discuss with the patient that they that alcohol is a contraindication, that they cannot drink when they're on this medication, and physician, uh, patients actually sign a document that we put into the electronic health record that says that I have counseled them about the medication and that they will not drink. The issue that I have with that is, you know, this is, again, really this medication has been singled out, and one of the reasons it was singled out was the results of the alcohol challenge study that they did. So there were 25 patients, and one of the big complaints of the people who are really against this medication is that the alcohol challenge study was done in 25 individuals, 23 of which were men, only two of them were women. The problem with the study was that this was a very high-dose alcohol challenge. It was women were given the equivalent of four drinks of alcohol, or I'm sorry, uh, individuals were given four drinks of alcohol on almost an empty stomach first thing in the morning and then challenged with phlebanserin. And there was a substantial increase in that group of having side effects with the medication, hypotension and syncope. And that's what led to the boxed warning and the contraindication against alcohol. Um, I really think when, in taken in context, but when you look at the pivotal trials, which the three large pivotal trials Alcohol consumption was not an exclusion in those trials. And so women were actually social drinkers, and we really didn't see the same problem. Practically, I will tell you that when I am counseling patients, I am on label now. I absolutely discuss with them that alcohol is contraindicated, and I really go through the whole consent. But in the back of my mind, I am uh, really less worried than I believe the boxed warning and the contraindication that the FDA has placed on this medication really warrants. I'm quite concerned about the alcohol issue, and I think it gives me an opportunity to open up the discussion about alcohol. We know that alcohol use and abuse is rampant in the United States, especially with women. And now I think I'm doing a better job at screening all of my patients in terms of alcohol use and abuse. I use the CAGE. 
uh, screener, cut down, angry, guilty, eye-opener. And to be frank with you, Lisa, if I have a woman who tells me she's having an eye-opener in the morning or three glasses of wine a day, we certainly have a bigger issue at hand to discuss. First and foremost, before we do a deep dive into her sexual health issues. We have to have caution. As clinicians, we don't want to do harm, but we also have to to weigh the benefits and the risks and individualize. And, you know, uh, I know you and I agree when we say we have a war chest of a whole variety of things, from conservative approaches to more aggressive interventions in terms of treating and evaluating and easing the discomfort of patients. And it's our job to develop a therapeutic alliance between clinician and patient and pick and choose and offer interventions and discuss those concerns. Any last-minute thoughts about phlebanserin for our listeners? I think that they should be aware that they do need to be certified to prescribe. They need to go to a certified pharmacy to get the prescriptions filled. And again, there's tools to help the clinician who may not be the expert in sexual medicine like you and I in order to diagnose and treat this. But any last thoughts or comments, Lisa? The last comments I would make would be to, you know, look at phlebanserin as, as you said, one potential option for the right patient who you've really, really done the DSDS, you've really screened, you really can evaluate counsel and then discuss risk-benefit with the particular patient. You know, this is a medication, much like antidepressants, that does not work for every patient, is not appropriate for every patient. But I really am concerned that what I've seen in the media since the JAMA article is released is lots of people out there saying this should be never, you should never prescribe this medication, this is not appropriate for anyone, this should be taken off the market, the FDA did the wrong thing, and my opinion is that all of those things are inaccurate. This is another medication which, like any medication that we prescribe to our patients, really warrants conversation about risk-benefit and is shared decision-making. So in a patient who has HSDD who is really bothered by it, it's causing her great distress, and you have the conversation about the alcohol interaction, you have the conversation about the potential benefit, again, discussing with her that she may or may not be one of the patients that responds to this, and allowing her to make an informed decision about whether or not she wants to take this medication, I think is the right approach. I think the naysayers out there saying that this is absolutely a, a, HSDD is not a real condition, and B, that this medication should be taken off the market, I really think that that's, that's not accurate and not an appropriate way to view the data that's out there. Right, and I think you bring up some really good points in terms of looking at this objectively and critically, and you know that I am a, a sexual medicine gynecologist, but I'm also a therapist, so I think it's really critical to also mentioned to the clinician, sometimes there is a psychological origin for HSDD. Sometimes people have relationship issues. Sometimes it's stress and fatigue or sexual boredom. And again, as clinicians, we need to look at the multifaceted etiological origins of lowered libido and really tease out these issues. And again, use your clinical skills 
to see what interventions are appropriate. And I certainly think that we all can use a little counseling and therapy, and we are not negating the importance of therapy or assessing the situation, the stress, and the fatigue. That's 100% correct, Michael, which is, again, with the naysayers, just having this medication available does not negate in any way the benefit of therapy or the importance of evaluating all of those other things, which I know you do so well in your practice, right? This is one medication for a specific group of patients. It's not for everybody. It's not the right medication for every, everyone at all. And, all, you know, in the biopsychosocial model, we have to look at all of those other things. But I think the naysayers saying that it shouldn't even be part of the discussion is also wrong. I agree. And I think that we need to uh, look at it critically and as well as be more collaborative. I mean, there is certainly opportunities for medical clinicians and therapists and counselors to collaborate. Lisa, thank you so much for joining us today to really talk about this important issue in terms of the media hysteria and uh, the sometimes twisting of facts and helping us separate between fact versus fiction for phlebanserin. Thank you so much for the opportunity, Michael. You've been listening to Sex Med on ReachMD. Be sure to visit our website at reachmd.com slash sexmed to download this segment and others in this series. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Critchman, and remember, sexual health is general health. Thank you for listening.